This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb, Sam, Noah, Benton, and Lydia. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll get started now with a couple of serious questions. In this episode, we have questions from Caleb and from Sam. We'll begin with Caleb's question, which has to do with Old Testament history. Caleb asks, Why did men in the Old Testament have so many wives? Well, Caleb, it's an interesting observation, and you're absolutely right. When you read about the patriarchs or when you read about the kings of Israel, it's always really surprising to realize that many of them had more than one wife. In fact, some of them, like Solomon, had a lot more than just one. Now, there's a word for this, uh, one man having multiple wives, and that word is polygamy. Now, believe it or not, there are people who've seen this and noticed that it was common in the Old Testament, and they've decided that it must be good. After all, it's in the Bible, and anything in the Bible, they tell themselves, must be approved by God. But you have to be careful with arguments like that, because if we go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, if we go to the Garden of Eden, before sin entered into human history, we find that when God institutes marriage, it's between one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve. Now, much later, when Jesus teaches about marriage, or when the apostles mention marriage, they always go back to the garden. They always go back to marriage as it was meant to be, marriage as it was before the fall, before sin entered in in order to see what God's plan for marriage was. Now, the very first example that we see in the Bible of polygamy comes early in Genesis chapter 4. Now, the fall takes place in Genesis chapter 3, and then in the very next chapter in Genesis 4, we have the first example of a man with multiple wives. And this is after sin has entered into the world and begun to corrupt the way things are and the way people are. The guy who's mentioned in Genesis 4 is a man named Lamech. He's very boastful. He's a very violent man. He's actually seen as a kind of prototype of a man in rebellion against God. And so from the beginning, we see that this is a practice that's associated with defying God's plan. But If you keep reading your Old Testament history, you discover that like a lot of sin, this is a practice that became commonplace. In fact, it was so common that people didn't really question it. It was one of those things people just assumed because everybody's doing it, then it must be right. Of course, there are a lot of things that happen in the world that people accept because everyone is doing it and we assume it must be right, but that doesn't mean that God approves of them. And marriage is one of those areas where there are a lot of things that we might assume are are right and, and good in the eyes of God because everybody's doing it, 
but God, in fact, does not approve of it. A good example would be of what we might call easy divorce, which Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees for teaching and, and insisting that Moses taught this. So there are a couple of things we need to remember whenever we see these Old Testament cases of polygamy. First and foremost, we have to remember that not everything that people do in the Bible is actually approved of by God. The Bible sometimes records the history, the the events that took place, and just because those events aren't criticized at the moment that they are being recorded doesn't mean that God is okay with them or that he approves them. Just because something's mentioned in the Bible, just because the quote-unquote good guys in the Bible, people like Abraham or Moses or King David do it, doesn't mean that it's right or without sin. It doesn't mean that God approves of it. Because of this second thing that we need to remember always, that God is loving. And because of that love, God has always been very patient with human sin. God has oftentimes been more patient than he needed to be or than you would have expected him to be because this long-suffering of God is meant to lead to repentance. But just remember, as the Bible says, don't confuse the patience of God with acceptance or approval. Great question, Caleb. Now we'll look at Sam's question, which has to do with baptism. Sam asks, is it a sin to skip being baptized? Well, the short answer, Sam, is yes. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace, and neglecting that sign is a sin. It would be a sin for a church not to baptize the people that the sign belongs to, to believers and their children. And it would be a sin for an individual who is entitled to that sign to neglect it. That's the short answer. For a more nuanced answer, though, let's take a look at the Westminster Confession. If we look in chapter 28, which is all about baptism, we can find a good answer about this. Here's what section 5 of chapter 28 says. Although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance of baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Okay, so let's unpack that for just a second. So first of all, it is a great sin to neglect the ordinance of baptism. If you look in Luke's gospel in chapter 7, around verse 30, you'll see that Luke, as he's recording the narrative, he draws a connection between people, and in this case Pharisees, rejecting baptism and rejecting God's purpose for them. So that's pretty serious. If you go back to Exodus 4, you'll see that even Moses gets in trouble for neglecting to circumcise his son. And baptism in the New Testament is the analog of circumcision in the Old Testament. So clearly, we shouldn't neglect baptism. At the same time, the confession is telling us that according to Scripture, a person who is unbaptized can be saved, just as a person who is baptized might not be. It's not enough to receive the sign. 
we must also come to faith in Jesus Christ, what the sign signifies. So, yeah, you shouldn't neglect baptism. Baptism is a good gift that God has given to us to testify to his promise to save. It is a sin to skip baptism. At the same time, remember that baptism is not what causes salvation, and it's possible for a person to be saved, but for one reason or another, not baptized. The two things are not so inseparably linked, as the confession says, that you can't have one without the other. A great example, of course, would be the thief on the cross, who is with Jesus in paradise, but was not able to be baptized. Now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Noah. Noah has a question about prayer. Here's the question. If I went through my whole life without praying at all, would the outcomes be the same or would my life turn out worse? You know, a lot of people have questions like this about prayer, so I'm glad that Noah asked. Essentially, the question that he's asking is this, does prayer make a difference? Now, people who don't believe in God have an easy answer for this one. They say, of course not. Of course prayer doesn't make a difference. Prayer doesn't accomplish anything, at least not according to them. If you pray for someone in their minds, that's the same thing as doing nothing. In fact, when some tragedy occurs, when something terrible takes place and we respond by saying, uh, my prayers are with you, a lot of people who don't believe in God think that's, that's like saying, I don't care at all. I'm not going to do anything about this challenge. I'm just going to pray about it. Christians, of course, don't see prayer in this way because we believe that there is a God and that God has told us to pray but Christians do sometimes wonder about prayer as well, right? We believe in God, and we know that God tells us to pray. In fact, the Bible encourages us to pray without ceasing. But the Bible also says some other stuff. Right? The Bible says that God is immutable. Uh, in other words, that God never changes. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the Bible also teaches that God, uh, in the language of the Westminster Confession, ordains whatsoever comes to pass. In other words, he's in control of everything that happens. Now, if God never changes and God is in control of everything that happens, then the question you have to ask is, what difference does prayer make? Right? If your prayers don't change God's mind, and if what God ordains is going to happen, won't the same thing happen whether you pray or not? That's the question a lot of us ask. Now, before we dig into this question, I want to make a suggestion. Episode 15 of our other podcast, The Commentary, is all about prayer. If you have questions about how to pray, it'd be good to listen to that episode. You could listen to it on your own or better with your family. Right here, I'm just going to focus on one aspect of prayer, which is this question about whether prayer changes things. But in that episode, Cameron and I talk about a lot more, and so it'd be a good place to go 
uh, to think about prayer more. So first things first, the goal of prayer is important to understand. The goal of prayer is not just to get things or to change things. The reason why God tells us to pray and there's so much emphasis that we put in the church on prayer isn't just that we're trying to change what's happening or get God to give us things. But the ultimate goal of prayer is to commune with God. And God tells us to pray to him, and so we should. He tells us to ask him for what we desire, and so we should. But that's part of communing with God. That's part of communicating with him, sharing our needs and our desires is a way of talking to him, of communicating with him. And when you're in relationship with someone, you communicate with them. You share your heart with them. And that's what prayer is ultimately about. Okay, so understanding that if me asking God for something isn't going to change God's mind, if I cannot change God's mind because God is unchanging, then what's the point of prayer? Well, this is going to get a little complicated, but here's what you've got to know. So God doesn't just control the outcome. He doesn't just control what happens. He also controls the means. In other words, how we get there. He controls the destination, but he also is sovereign over how we arrive at that destination. Like every little detail in history, everything that happens along the way, everything that contributes to what happens, all of that is under God's control and is ordained by God. And our prayers are one of those details. Your prayers are one of the actions that God uses to make things happen. Now, usually when we think about this question of whether prayer uh, achieves anything, if prayer makes a difference or not, we're thinking about life this way. So we imagine the timeline of history, and it's all mapped out in advance. But maybe if we pray hard enough, then we can change the map. We can change the direction of history. But the reality is this. Your prayers are already part of the map. They are already part of the plan that is unfolding in history. So God already knows what he's going to do, and he already knows how he's going to do it. He's going to do it in part through prayer. And so his spirit is working in you to give you the words to say so that as you commune with God in prayer, you are part of the way that God brings things to pass. God works through the prayers of his people. So yes, our prayers make a difference. They quote-unquote change things, but, but only in the sense that they bring about what God has ordained. So when you see God's people praying, you can expect God to be at work. And that means that, yes, prayer does make a difference. And a life of prayer is rich and full in a way that a life without prayer never can be. Just remember that when Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, his model prayer, he says, Thy will be done. 
So when we pray, we don't pray for God to change his will or to do something that's not in his will. Just like Jesus, we pray that God will do his will. When you ask yourself, won't God's will be done, whether we pray this or not, you got to remember, the thing is, the way God brings his will to pass is through the prayer of his people. He wants us to worship him, and that's what prayer is. When we worship him, his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom is coming. So yes, our prayers make a difference because it is through our prayer that his kingdom comes. As always, for our closing segment, we'll look at a few fun questions, this time from Benton and Lydia. Benton has another question about games. This time he asks, did you play any video games when you were younger? If so, what games? Well, Benton, I actually started playing video games way back in the 1970s, pretty much when they first came out. The first one that I can remember was a very exciting game called Pong. Now, Pong was sort of like tennis if your tennis racket was just a little short line and your ball was just a floating pixel. Uh, by today's standards, Pong was pretty primitive, but we thought it was magical at the time. And I can still remember this sound that little pixel would make when it hit your little line that was meant to be your racket. It was amazing. And of course, later on in the 1980s, we got a lot of new games when the arcades opened up. And I remember playing uh, Defender and Asteroid and Pac-Man. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I got to play the arcade version of Pac-Man again for the first time in about 30 years, I think. And I can report that I have not lost my skills. Our last question is from Lydia, and she's thinking about nature. Lydia asks, what is your favorite plant? This might not surprise you, but I don't have much of a green thumb. I like plants, but I'm not really good at growing them. And my favorite type of plant is called a succulent. If you're not sure what a succulent is, you can ask your mom and she'll show you a picture and you'll see. I like succulents because they look like they came from this weird alternate universe. They're kind of like if you planted cactus right outside a nuclear power plant and the radiation affected the plants and you just got all these weird little plants. Uh, they don't look like they come from planet Earth. I will say, though, even though succulents are my favorite type of plant, that recently, in the past year, I was introduced to a special plant that uh, I have a lot of high hopes for. It's actually in the window right now of my library at home where it gets plenty of sun. Now, this special plant is called a money plant, or sometimes you'll hear people call it a money tree. Now, what's funny about that is, when I was a kid, my dad used to always say that money didn't grow on trees. But now I actually have a little money tree. So I don't know what he was thinking. Now I have to admit, so far, no money has actually grown on my money tree. If you look at it right now, it just looks like a regular plant with green leaves. But I think if we keep watering it and it gets enough sun, then I'm sure eventually some money will appear on the branches soon. 
I just hope it's an American money tree so that it grows dollars and not some foreign currency. Uh, well, I'll keep you posted on when my money tree starts sprouting. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.